ushers, why don't you come ahead? We're going to receive our tithes and offerings this morning and start the year with giving hearts. Father, we thank you for generosity. We thank you that there's no way we can ever outgive you and that there's nothing that we do give that you don't reward us in the next life with uh, rewards that we can only imagine. You say that your reward is with you and you are coming to give to each person according to that which they have rendered. So I pray that you bless the generosity of your people and receive this offering in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Enjoy our announcement. Um, so yeah, my grandfather, you may not know this, but my grandfather was um, present when the Titanic sank. And um, three times after they hit the iceberg, he yelled out, that ship is going to sink. That ship is going to sink. And then on the third time, they threw him out of the theater. Um, so, um, hey, we all know that 2022 is probably going to have some disappointments, right? Uh, I literally started an online, uh, a class rather, a correspondence class on how to deal with disappointments. And I got the first lesson in the mail the other day, and I opened the envelope, and it was empty. It's going to be a going to be a tough class. So we are going to start off with the book of James this year. And so uh, let's just jump in to James chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I'm just going to unpack this a little bit as we go along. The first thing he says is, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to just stop there because there's a parallel between James and the Apostle Paul. And I want to kind of spell some of this stuff out because uh, there's been big divisions in the history of the church between Paul's view of faith and James' view of faith. But here, James says, James, a bondservant of God. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul starts off by saying, Paul, a servant called to be an apostle. So they both have this mindset that before any other accolades or any titles or names, that they are servants of God. And that's a good, healthy position for each and every one of us to have, that before anything else, we're servants of God. We serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes that are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I absolutely relate to James. Um, because James was the half-brother of Jesus, and I know what it's like to grow up in a home with a brother who thinks he's God. Um, but anyways, James, um, he starts off by referring to this dispersion we call the dysphoria, um, the scattered Jews that have scattered all throughout the Roman Empire and outside of the Roman Empire. And the reason that they were scattering was because of persecution, both by the Roman government and also by the the um, synagogues that were going after Christians. And so this is why he's writing the letter to those people that are scattering because of the persecution, and they're suffering poverty and hardship because of this dispersion and, you know, basically fleeing through their lives. And so in five action-packed chapters, James really calls his readers to make resolutions. And so how can we not talk about this when we talk about the beginning of a new year, when a lot of people make resolutions? But the resolutions that James gives us are a little bit more impactful than, you know, I need to lose a few pounds, or I need to save money a little bit better, or, you know, uh, I need to use more whatever in my life. Um, these are kingdom resolutions. These are resolutions that have eternal consequences in our lives and present blessings in our lives when we look at that. And so James talks about a serving faith. 
He talks about a faith that is demonstrated by deeds, where Paul always talked about faith that stands alone, faith alone and Christ alone. And so there was a big conflict between the book of James and the teaching of Paul. And that's why I wanted to bring out some of the similarities, because they're basically talking about two different sides of the same coin. If we have faith, there's going to be a corresponding action that demonstrates that faith. So Paul talks about the faith. James talks about the corresponding actions that go along if we have faith. Because faith is a living thing, and living things produce. And so James talks about the things that produce. And in verse 2 here, he talks about considering. And the Aramaic word literally means to lead the way with the mind. In other words, this shows that our minds are active in our faith, that our faith isn't just hung on nothing, that there are things that we use our mind to steer us into the promises of God, the things of God. Like somebody once said, our attitude determines our altitude. And so we're using our mind, we're letting God adjust our attitudes. And he talks about that when we go through various trials, that it produces endurance. And this is the attitude that faith needs to have, that it can suffer hardships, it can face suffering, and it can come out in, in victory. It can have conquests over those things. So the trials that we experience is literally the impetus that causes us to have joy because we have a hope that transcends anything that this life can throw at us. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of followers of Christ live defeated lives is because they're just living this life. And they're not living this life in light of eternity. And so when we put our minds on things eternal, it, it, it gives a whole new perspective on how we are to live this life. But again, Paul says basically the same thing. So let's jump over to Romans 5. In verse 3 and 5, and Paul says this, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. So it's interesting because James talked about trials. Paul's talking about tribulations. He says, knowing that these tribulations bring about perseverance. James talked about trials and endurance. Paul's talking about tribulations and perseverance. They're saying the same thing, right? In, ver in verse 4, he says, in perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And so he's talking about these things produce something in a linear line. And then he goes into verse 5 and he says, And hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom was given to us. So we always have this testimony of the Spirit of God that we are children of God, that we're on the right course, that everything's okay, that God still loves us, that Jesus is still good with us, that he's rooting for us. If God is for you, who can be against you? It's going to be okay. And sometimes we just re need to remind ourselves it's going to be okay because who knows what awaits us in the future? Who knows what kind of things that we're going to go through? But we always have eternal life. We always have access to the Father, and we always have the atonement of our sins. And so we should remind ourselves these things again and again and again. And so we're going to look at a couple of quick case studies, and the first one is the Apostle Paul. Paul writes two-thirds of our New Testament, and, um, and we are so blessed because of that. And Paul writes the book of Philippians. Paul writes Philippians while he's in a Roman dungeon. So I want to paint a picture so that we can wrap our minds around what's coming out of his heart. Paul is in a Roman dungeon in horrific conditions when he writes the epistle to the Philippians. And in that epistle, he uses the words, because there's multiple different ones, for joy 16 times. 
16 times he's referring to this. And yet this is the same Paul whose experiences gave him shipwrecks, gave him imprisonment, gave him persecution. He was stoned almost to death. He was beaten with rods. All of these things that he went through. And yet he continually tells us to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And that is not what he said. Because he didn't just say rejoice like pie in the sky. He said rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And that's not just a statement of like, I'm going to rejoice about God, but he's literally talking about rejoicing in God. So we come into his presence. We experientially encounter God through our worship. He's the living God, and we encounter him. We taste and see that the Lord is good. And in that presence and in those experiences when we're encountering the living God, there is joy. There's absolute joy in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 and 18, Paul said, again, rejoice always. This is another epistle he writes from a prison. He says, rejoice, pray without ceasing, and in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A lot of times I've had people say, you know, I just don't know what God's will is. Well, right here, part of his will is saying, just be thankful. Just rejoice in the things that he's done for you. Um, so Paul understands joy in the face of extreme hardship. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is based on experiences. I had a good day, I'm happy. I had a bad day, I'm not happy. Joy is something that is inside of us. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that runs very deep, and it is not based on circumstances. Because Paul, again, had a, you know incredible circumstances, and yet he's saying, listen, I've learned to always be joyful because I'm rejoicing in God my Savior. And I'm looking at what he's done for me and where I'm going. I'm looking at my ultimate destination. And so here's this joy that's always going on. And so Paul experienced this joy, and he lived in that joy. We look at David. David was a man after God's own heart, right? The Bible has that record about David, that David was a man after God's own heart. And yet he knew all kinds of hardships in his life. He knew all kinds of trials in his life. He was anointed to be king. And then after being anointed to king, he had to run for his life. He had to hide in the caves of the desert. Um, he was running from King Saul who wanted to kill him and all these different things. Later on, he had an adulterous affair with a woman and had her husband murdered and that haunted him. And then he lied about it. And, um, and then he had a, dysfunct a dysfunctional family. After that, one of his sons usurped his throne and he had to flee Jerusalem and run for his life again. And yet, despite all of these troubles and tribulations that he was going through, he learned to rejoice in God. And he's the one that writes Psalm 16, verse 11. And he says, you will make known to me the path of life. And here it is again, in your presence. He didn't say with your presence or by your presence. He said in, in your presence. I'm experientially coming into your presence. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, when people think about heaven and they start getting bored because they don't understand like what's waiting us, this verse should really snap us back into reality. In his presence, there is pleasure forevermore. Or in his presence, there's joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Do you know what gets us in trouble a lot? Do you know why we fail? Do you know why we fall into sin? Because we're looking for pleasure. And the Bible says the pleasure of sin lasts for a season. Starts out looking really good, and then it turns into a bondage and enslaves us. 
But the joy that comes from being in God's presence is totally different. I remember, you know, growing up when I, I, you know, I went away from God, went away from even my family, and I was just out there, you know, drinking, smoking, snorting, doing everything I possibly could to numb myself and had all those experiences of every high that all these drugs can give you, coke and acid and speed and pot and all that kind of stuff and alcohol, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember when I got saved. And I went to this thing called full gospel businessmen's meetings. These were businessmen that used to get together and have these times with God. And I went there, and uh, and I know I've shared this before, but you know there was three guys with acoustic guitars. None of them were in tune with one another, and none of them were even in tune with themselves. You know, and a little bit of a musician, and they start playing. You know, singing these songs, "I love you, Lord," and I lift my hand, and I'm just like, "Oh dear God, this is painful." And then I just said, you know what, but I looked at their faces, and their faces were a glow with like heaven, and their faces were like a glow with joy and contentment, and I'm like, you know, these guys got something I don't have. And so I just closed my eyes, and I raised my hands, and I just began to worship God, and I said, you know, Jesus, I'm so thankful you saved me, and I love you, and, I, and all of a sudden, man, I'm telling you what, a pleasure came over me. And it was something that I had never experienced before. There is no drug that can compare with the goodness that God pours on you in his presence. And the good thing about it is, is when, it, when it's done, you feel clean and alive rather than dirty and disgusted. It was a good thing. And, and I was like, you know, when that experience hit me, I knew right then and there I would never need another drug again. I would never need another drug again because taste and see that the Lord is good. And in your presence there is the fullness of joy. And he never leaves us in all of these things, right? Um, he's always going to be with you through the storm, just like Daniel in the lion's den, just like the three Hebrew children and the fire. They weren't alone. God was with them through all those things. We look at the nation of Israel. They had a repetitive cycle of repentance and turning to God and then falling away from God into sin. Judgment would come and on and on and on. It just went up and down and up and down. And they had spent 70 years in captivity um, with the Babylonians and then with the Persians. And then they were released to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their heritage. And when they did that, in Nehemiah chapter 8, it talks about Nehemiah um, it, you know, brings the word to them. And Ezra, who's a priest, brings the word of God to them. And when they hear the word of God and when they hear how they broke the heart of God with their sin, they begin to weep. They began, to get, they, they began to get discouraged over, over their shortcomings and over their failures. And so we pick it up in Nehemiah 8, verses 9 and 10, and this is what it says. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Basically, they're saying, listen, cut it out. And then they say this, for all the people were weeping when they heard the word of the, they heard the, word of the law. Then he said to them, go and eat the fat. In, in, in American language, that is like, dude, go out and have a double cheeseburger. And drink the sweet. Get a Coke with it if you want, right? And send portions. Get a value meal to give to somebody else who has nothing to be prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. And here it comes, the next part. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is why James is saying, count it all joy, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, I once heard a sermon years ago. The title was, if the devil can't steal your joy, he can't have your goods. If the devil can't steal your joy, he can't have your goods. 
So that's one thing that you have to defend against is your joy, that you maintain a position of joy always. We see it in Paul. We see it in Israel. We see it um, all over the place. We even see it in the life of Jesus, right? I mean, our Savior knew joy. He knew joy. Isaiah prophesied that he'd be a man of sorrows and a man of sufferings, and yet look what the writer of Hebrews said. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus have joy? Because he had a future look. He wasn't looking at the fact that he was going at a cross and he was going to have these sufferings. He was looking that he was going to the cross intentionally with a purpose in mind, and that was to redeem a family that would be his forever. And so he saw the reward of his sacrifice and was filled with joy. He was filled with joy because he saw one day you would be in a relationship with him. And that's what sustained him on that cross. And when he says that he despised the shame, in the, in the Greek that literally means to turn around. In other words, dying a, a criminal's death is disgusting. It's, hum, it's humbling. Like who would want to dis, you know, die a criminal's death because that's what crucifixion was. And yet Jesus turned around and now the cross becomes the most glorious symbol of hope and love and future and faith and hope and all these things. He, despite, he took something that was despicable and turned it around and turned it into a blessing that brings us joy. And so Jesus understood the power of joy to sustain us. And then Job, well, I didn't even put him up there, but we all know that Job suffered terrible, terrible things because he was put through all kinds of tests. But here's the thing to remember. If you're going through a test, that means there's a tester, and he's not going to leave you or forsake you. Yeah, you might be being tested, but he is still there with you. Trials might be painful, but they're like workouts. They're molding you, and they're shaping you. Listen, you go to the gym, and it's painful. You know, you, you push some iron around, or you get on a treadmill. The next day, your arms are tired, your legs are tired. It's like, oh, that wasn't fun. But it's making you stronger, right? And that's exactly what these trials and tests do to us. They make us stronger in our faith, make us stronger in our steadfastness in serving the Lord. Now, James talks about these trials. He says, count it all joy. The New American Standard Version says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Other translations say count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because uh, one of the things about trials is that they're often sudden, right? You're, I mean, you're just going along life and all of a sudden you get blindsided with something that you weren't expecting. Something that happens and all of a sudden you find yourself in a trial that just came out of nowhere. And I like what one, one person said. He said, you're either in a trial or you've just come out of a trial, or you're getting ready to go into a trial. Because there's no neutrality in life. It's, it's always fluid, right? That's just part of life. And so if you're in a good place, just be thankful. Thank God. Give God glory. and thank, Because things are always changing. So he says they, they can be sudden, out of nowhere. They're also certain. He said, count it joy when, not if. Not if you're going to encounter a trial. Just when, because it's going to happen. That's life. Life isn't fair. Life is hard. Our kids used to say, life's not fair. That's not fair. And we used to say, yeah, get used to it because that's true. It's not fair. It kicks everybody to the curb. Everybody gets wounded. You don't know what happened in my life. 
No, I don't. But you don't know what happened in everybody else's life. Everybody, nobody gets through unscathed. Nobody gets through unscathed. And listen, being a pastor for over 33 years, I've heard it all. I've heard incredible stories of heartache. But the, you know what? They're also stories of victory. That people go through things and come out the other side learning to forgive and move on and God blesses and turns those things into their testimony. Into the, te the very thing that the enemy meant for evil, God means for good and turns it into the testimony of his victory in your life. It's so awesome. And then also he talks about the fact that they're diverse. There's all kinds of things. It's not similar to every single person all the time. It, the consequences could be even a struggling economy, right? You know, things are struggling and people might feel the pinch, especially people that are on fixed income. Gas is going up, food's going up. And, you know, that can be a trial. It can be the devastation of an accident. You know, somebody just trips and falls, breaks a leg, and all of a sudden they're into something. It can be a time of persecution that family members are, you know, picking on you or persecuting you. Uh, it could be just the pandemic that's going on and all the kinds of things that happen with that. And, and now psychologists, psychiatrists are saying that the psychological impact of the two and a half years that we've just gone through of a pandemic is really starting to grate on people. You know, there's people that are starting to come undone and, and feel the stress of what's going on. And so it's, it's, it's just interesting that this is what happens. It can be sudden, and, and, but there's definitely going to happen, and they can be really, really diverse. And sometimes the persecution is really what the Bible is talking about. Because if you're honestly going to live for Jesus, you know what the Bible says? You will be persecuted. People aren't going to appreciate the fact that you've become a follower of Christ. I was thinking about this the other day because I was talking with a gentleman that I made contact with whose cousin died while hiking. And so this is through the hiking community and, you know, uh, making a lot of connections through the hiking community, through the books that I've written and things. And, and I was talking to this guy, his cousin, who he hiked with all the time, who was in perfect shape, died on a hike. And he was saying, but I got to say that the search and rescue people were wonderful. I can never say enough about the search and rescue people and how they dealt with my cousin and how they dealt with us as a family. You know what? You can get away with that. I am so thankful for these people who tried to rescue but were there and were loving and kind, and that's okay. But as soon as you start saying, I'm so thankful for Jesus who rescued me and was kind to my life, all of a sudden people are like, whoa. There's just something about the name of Jesus that is not that friendly to people, not that accepted as people, for whatever reason, probably because the God of this world blinds their minds. And there's a demonic attack against the things of Jesus. And so when we name the name of Jesus, we got a great big bullseye on our back. And we walk around life and there'll be people who will persecute you. I remember one guy, you know, when I got saved and transitioned out of that life of sin, and I met this guy that I used to know back in school, and he was like, hey, you know, how's things going? I'm like, well, man, I says, my life has totally changed. I met, I met Jesus, and he literally started walking backwards. Like, like I had Omnicom. You know, I mean, just like, you know, it, like he literally started walking backwards. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. You know, like, uh, you know, it's Jesus, not leprosy. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. So, but that's, that's what happens. There's, there's can be persecution that happens. And so we see scriptures like Matthew 5, 12. Look at what he says. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who went before you. So Jesus is saying, listen, 
even when they're picking on you, even when they're rejecting you, even when they don't want to hear your stuff, even when they're calling you Jesus freak and Bible thumper and all these different things, you know what he's saying? He's saying, rejoice. Rejoice. Goes on 1 Peter, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise of his glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then look what he says next. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you, re you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's talking about like, listen, even though you've never seen Jesus, you've never given him a big bear hug, you've never touched him, you still believe in him. And that delights the heart of God. And, and, and so there's that presence again where in him, he's in us and we're in him. And, and we taste and see that God is good. And he says in that, he goes, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Do you experience that kind of joy in your life? And if not, why not? Because this is what he's talking about that empowers us. And maybe we need to make some resolutions this year of, I, I want to start living a life of joy. I just want to start living a life of joy because there's all kinds of things. There's you know what we call joy suckers, right? There's, there's things that will just take that right out of your life. And I just want to have a, a, a life of joy. So... So Darlene and I, we had a big family get-together um, at my other sister's house in Kittery yesterday. And Darlene and I are driving back, coming down 95, heading back towards Exeter and then into Raymond. Driving down 95. It's raining. It's at night. My eyes, you know, I'm blind in one eye, so it, like, the glare really affects me a little bit more. And I'm driving down 95 and um, speeding. And so, um, so there's literally like, there's literally like, Four Massachusetts cars in each lane all going the same speed. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, at first I'm like, you know, and then I'm like, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to count that joy. And while I'm counting it joy in your presence, if I could petition you to just cause one of them, just one of them to explode into a ball of molten fire and hurl off the cliff, you know, that would just be delightful. But, you know, no, no. So, so, so this is like a resolution. It's like, you know, I just, I want to have more joy. In 2022, I don't care what happens. I want to have more joy. And I think you should too. You should just say, I want to have more joy. So Jesus said in Luke 6, 22, blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the son of man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Okay. Now it's like, okay, Lord, like you're pushing the envelope a little bit more. You know, like, like people come up to me, you're a Jesus freak, a Bible thumper, what an idiot, blah, blah, blah. Like, you want me to start, like, leaping for joy? That's only going to give them more fuel that I've totally lost my crackers, you know what I mean? But he says, look at why, 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 why is he saying leap for joy? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. When people look down their nose at you and judge you and scorn you because you're a follower of Jesus, bam, you're getting rewards in heaven because you are standing faithful to Christ. He says, if you 
Don't deny me before men. I won't deny you before my father. And he says, in the same way they used to treat the prophets. So there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like, you know, why is this all happening to me? It's happened to thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people who have gone before from the prophets all the way till today. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. That's just incredible. That's just incredible. Listen, sometimes the persecution we suffer is just living in a fallen world. And we look at the news and we look at the chaos and we look at the godlessness of the world we live in, and it's oppressive. It's kind of like Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Bible said that righteous man's soul was vexed every day. And sometimes we look at the news and our souls are vexed because we see like, wow, like just, it's crazy. Like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you know, it's just like absolutely nuts. But trials are part of our existence, it's part of our life. And we don't give up when things get dark. We learn to stand, we learn to fight, we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we know the joy of the glory that's to come. See, the problem is, is a lot, especially American Christians, we want everything now in this lifetime. We're so blessed. We have so many creature comforts that we just want everything now, and we don't consider that, listen, this is dress rehearsal. This is like a vapor. This isn't, this isn't it. The next life is what is so important. And Paul, again, one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Like, you just don't even realize what your eyes are going to behold the moment you transition out of this life into the next. Because you don't die, you just transition. You don't cease to be, you just go from this plane of existence into that plane of existence. You go from the temporal into the eternal. And when our eyes open and we are there, man, it's like, it's like, It can't even be put into words. Again, read that book, Imagine Heaven, of people who died and saw things and came back. They all say the same thing. There are no words that can capture and describe accurately the things that they heard and saw and experienced in their brief little stay in heaven, in God's heaven. And so it's so important that we understand that when we go through things, it's it's just part of life. It's like the metamorphosis of a caterpillar that's that's in that chrysalis and it's becoming a butterfly. And, and if you know what happens is when that thing transitions and metamorphosizes into a cat, into a butterfly, it's stuck in a cocoon. Ooh, I get claustrophobic just thinking of it. And, and it starts, it starts beating its wings against this cocoon to break out of this chrysalis. And the more it does that and struggles and strives, the stronger it's becoming until it's, strength breaks out of that chrysalis and it comes out mature and that's what god is giving us a picture that this world is like smothering us as a cocoon and the hardships and the the persecutions but we're enduring and we have joy because we know one of these days boom we're going to break out of this we're going to be in god's presence forever and we're going to be mature we're going to be whole it's going to be glory and inexpressible joy that he talks about here you see because here's the thing Your testimony matters. When you go through tough times, when you go through hardship, that testimony matters. Throughout the Bible, we see the importance of remembering and then telling other people about the good things that God's done in our life. When Israel forgot 
that they were the people of God and went into sin, they strayed from God's covenant. That's why we have to remind each other that, yeah, I went through this hardship. That's why testimonies are so important, that we should share testimonies. I went through this and I went through that. It strengthens other people because how many people in today's world really are sad and discouraged? How many people are sad and discouraged? But our joy communicates hope. There's hope. There's um, an observation that comes from all of this that James ties the ability to have joy and stand in joy with our need for wisdom. Because right after he talks about in verses 1 through 3 about count it all joy when you encounter various trials, by the time he gets to verse 5, he says this, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. In other words, if you can't figure out how hardships actually are good for you and work for your future glory, then ask for wisdom. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. And I don't understand how living, you know, being beaten up and, and accused and persecuted in this life, I don't understand how that's good. I don't understand how I can rejoice in that. Well, you can't without the wisdom of God. And so he's saying, listen, if you lack that wisdom, just ask. And he will give it to you and he'll help you connect the dots and put the pieces together. And then you'll begin to see how this whole thing works. And it's like it will begin to make sense. You know, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. And so God, this is my, this is like my go-to prayer all the time. God, give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom. I need wisdom. I always have to have wisdom because there are trials in life that all, listen, there's trials in your job, right? You might have like a great job, but is it that great? Like there's going to be trials there. And then people are like, I'm going to leave this job, get another job. And guess what? They find out that the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence, right? And there's trials in relationships, you know? Oh, this is turning sour. There's trials in church. Pastor didn't wave to me. Hey, right now, this is for you. This is for you, all right? Don't say pastor didn't wave to me, right? There's trials in relationships. There's trials in relationships. There's nobody that has, there's nobody that doesn't have issues in their marriage, except Arlene. She wakes up every morning, bats her eyes at me and says, I'm so blessed. And I'm like, I know, dear. But other than that, everyone else has these trials that, you know, that are part of our experience. And so we have to ask for wisdom. And then James gives us the value of delayed gratification, that, you know, we say no to ourselves. And then, and then he, he says this in verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, it's not just for naught. It's to make you strong like that butterfly so that you come out mature, and then there's the crown of life. There's four crowns that are talked about in the ancient world that carry over right into Christianity. And the word crown in the Greek is the word stephanos. And, um, and when it was associated, first of all, there was a crown of flowers, and the crown of flowers were times of joy, times of wedding celebrations or feasts. And we read about it in Isaiah 28 and Song of Solomon 3. And so it's a crown of a sign of, of a festive joy. And this is what he's saying. We can have this crown of flowers of joy. And then there's the, the crown of royalty. 
And we understand this, right? Kings wear crowns. And in this day and in this antiquity, sometimes the crown was gold, sometimes it was just a linen band, but it represented royalty and authority. And Psalms 21 talks about that. Jeremiah 13 talks about that, that we're royalty, that we have authority, we rule and reign with Christ. And then there's the crown of laurel leaves, which was the crown of the athlete, the victor in the Olympic Games and the prize uh, that they coveted. And Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, and that God leads us into his victory. We're victorious. We're, like, we're, we're not silver, we're not bronze, we're gold, right? We're, gonna, we're, we're gold. And then this one, the crown of life. The crown of life, which is eternal life, which is rejuvenating, self-generating, eternal life, destiny, fulfillment, the things that God had for you, envisioned for you when he created you. That's why the Bible says God takes no delight in the wicked. Because there's not a person that's created, I don't care how evil or wicked, that God did not create them with eternal destiny in mind. What they had the potential of becoming. And when they lose that and lose themselves in sin and lose themselves in godlessness, he doesn't take any delight in that. Because they never reach the potential of what he created them for. Instead, they're going to suffer isolation from God for the rest of eternity, and that's called hell. And they'll never realize the potential of what they could have been if they had just followed Christ, given their lives to Christ, submitted to his leading. And that's what we want to do, receive this crown of... This is what the artists, you know, back in the medieval... The halo... That was like the crown of life, that these were saints. These were people that were walking in everlasting life because of their relationship with Christ. You see a picture, and they're depicted by all these other people that don't have the halo. And so the crown of life is promised to us. How does all this happen? I'll tell you, it happens through the act of worship. When you don't understand why things are happening, when you don't have a rationale that can help pull you through the darkest of times, and when you feel like you just can't go on another step, that's when you fall at his presence and begin to worship him. You don't worship him because you feel like it. You worship him because he is always worthy. He is always deserving. You might not feel it. You might be in a dark, a dark time. You might be in the blender of confusion and in a whirlwind and, and, and you know, in a tempest and you don't understand. Why is this even going on? Why, why am I getting kicked to the curb? And you just lay all that aside and you just begin to worship him. God, it doesn't matter. My circumstances have no bearing on whether you are worthy because you are constant. You never change. You're immutable. And you're always worthy and deserving of worship. And when you can make that transition of my situation sucks and why do I have to endure it over to the fact that, God, you are good and worthy of my praise, that's when the battle starts ending and the victory starts coming. When you can learn to just throw your hands up, empty your heart out to him and say, God, I bless your name. I, what did Job say? Even though you slay me, yet will I worship you, God. Because ultimately, I know in my knower that you are good. You are good, and you're working out all things according to your will, not mine. And one day, it will all make sense, and one day, the rewards will come. But that day's not now. Another great sermon that was preached years ago, someday, payday. 
But it's not now. It's not in this lifetime. It's not in this lifetime. But it's coming. All we have to do is just keep our joy. Keep our joy knowing that this is where I'm heading. There's a destination. When I go hiking, there's a destination I have in mind. I'm going to summit a mountain. And, and, and that's what keeps you going when you're going, you know, mile after mile up a 45-degree incline and, you know, you're sweating and you're hurting and your legs feel like they're turning into jello and you're breathing like a sumo wrestler in a sauna. And, you know, you're just like, it's hard work, right? But there's a goal. You keep pressing on. You keep pushing on. And that's what life is. It's a destiny that we're pushing on to. And Paul says, listen, the things we go through in this life can't even be compared how do we do it? Years ago, we had the flying Willenses in this sanctuary. They literally set up a trapeze right here. I, I remember they were up there in the ceiling doing their thing. And the guy said, the, the, the way you get across a tightrope, because it moves, they have, the, they have the bar, is he says, you have to fix your eyes on something where you're going that is immovable. You have to fix your eyes on something immovable so that you can see when it's moving a little bit. Because if you look down, you can't see what's constant. You start focusing on what's moving, and then all of a sudden it starts getting jittery. You lose balance and you fall. He says you fix your eyes on something immovable, and you keep moving towards that goal that never changes. And for us, that's Christ. That's our salvation that he secured for us. Keep Fixing your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, doing the same thing, he fixed his eyes on something that was immovable. And that was the plan of the Father for eternal redemption for you and I. Let's pray. Father, as we start 2022, we want to be remindful that there are resolutions that your word beckons us into. And one of them is this thing of joy. That, that God, again, we can, we can choose to put definition and to put value on the thoughts that come into our mind. We're the ones that determine whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, whether they're hurtful or beneficial. And we can choose, and Lord, help us to choose, even when things are horrible, to consider it joy. Because this life isn't the end of the story. And as we make those choices, that we would rejoice in you and in your presence, that you would strengthen us and that you'd bring us through every trial, every time, because you are good. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Listen, this is going to be a six-week series. And there's a follow-up that's going on Thursday nights here. We're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture and then doing the discovery-style Bible studies on James chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, count it all joy. So don't forget that as well. God bless you. See you next Sunday.